Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to the continuing series on the second half of American history, where we'll begin today with the Great Depression podcast number series or episode 24. In episode 23, we looked at toward a modern America, and that was America, of course, during the Roaring Twenties. Clearly more could have been said about the Roaring Twenties, and as I prefaced also into that podcast, that we will still somewhat be covering the Roaring Twenties as we go through and discuss the Great Depression, where we'll learn some of the tragic mistakes that were made during that very prosperous decade, known again as the Roaring Twenties. We discussed how industries ran at top production. We looked at the drawbacks, however, of the idea of overproduction, Wages would eventually start to drop. Corporations towards the end of the Roaring Twenties would begin to produce less. However, corporate America thought outside of the box trying to figure out how to get products in people's hands, even if the money wasn't in their pockets. So we looked at this idea of installments and layaway and financing. We looked at the dark side with the revival, unfortunately, of the KKK, as well as organized crime with the rise of Al Capone. We looked at international finance and how Europe was using United States loans to turn around and buy United States goods. And as a result of that, again, when America sunk into the Great Depression, that money dried up and therefore Europe's purchases of American goods also dried up. We ended with looking at the presidential election of 1928, where the American electorate was so confident with Republican leadership that by and large, the Democratic challenger, Al Smith in New York, didn't stand a chance, while, of course, Hoover, Herbert Hoover would come in with a landslide. So again, that is what we discussed in the Roaring Twenties in that time in American history. Now, moving ahead then, as we head into the Great Depression itself, as I start with my classes with the question, what just happened? I thought didn't we all think, certainly didn't Americans think at the end of 1929, that American prosperity was here to stay. The idea of war as they experienced it a decade prior and what is still only known as the Great War, the war to end all wars, was so horrific and so tragic that with the signing of the treaties of Versailles, war as they experienced it would never happen again. So warfare would be eliminated, at least on that scale, and money would be coming in with no end in sight. So again, what just happened? Well, this is what we're going to look at here is the foundation of the crash. Society, as I mentioned in the prior podcast, was clearly market-driven. What I mean by that is to put this into perspective, by 1929, the United States was spending literally more money on business and corporate marketing than we were in the public education system. 
easy credit with corporations bringing in and the banks so much money that by 1929, there was over $6 billion in easy credit to people that in some cases couldn't afford it and shouldn't have been approved for the amount of credit that they were authorized to receive. There was also building on what we call over-speculation, where the idea would be that build it and they will come. Well, what happens when they don't? What happens when the renting and the purchasing starts to decline and banks are financing the creation of tall types of establishments from homes to businesses to tower, to uh, looming towers and uh, uh, business buildings downtown what, of the major cities? What happens when that money dries up, which also then led to overproduction and finally an unbalanced sense of wealth and income? And to once again put this into actual numbers or perspective, I'd like to read from a page of the book called The Great Depression by Robert McElvain. And what this author highlighted oftentimes draws huge and wide-eyed stares from my students. As he wrote on page 37, quote, by the end of the 20s, roughly two-thirds of the industrial wealth of the United States had passed from individual ownership by the large publicly financed corporations. So again, it had gone from individual ownership to ownership by large publicly financed corporations. And when they began to start to falter, the dominoes would continue to fall. As McElvin writes on page 38, according, quote, according to the famous Brookings Institution study, America's capacity to consume, the top 0.1%, 0.1% of American families in 1929 had an aggregate income equal to that of the bottom 42%. Stated in absolute numbers, approximately 24,000 families had a combined income as large as that shared by more than 11.5 million poor and lower and middle class families. Fully 71% of all American families, a term that also includes those not married, in what was generally regarded as the most prosperous year the country and the world had ever known, had incomes under $2,500. At the other extreme, the 24,000 richest families enjoyed annual incomes in excess of $100,000, and the 513 American families that year reported incomes above $1 million, end quote. So that, again, by using percentages as well as hard and fast numbers to put into perspective once again just how unbalanced this wealth and income was, and if any of my listeners' ears are ringing, say, wait a minute, I remember hearing about that. Absolutely you do, because we were talking about that once again with the real estate crash in 2008 and the recession, severe recession that followed. So all of those four factors, the easy credit, the over-speculation, over-production, and unbalanced wealth and income 
We're a set of dominoes that we're getting larger and larger and larger and inherently more unstable that the moment one fell, it would take the others down with it. But know too, though, that while we look at the Great Depression as one and we mythically believe it was just one particular bad day on the market, it wasn't. The market had gone through serious, drop, serious drops for the past year. But ask any good investor, what do you do after the market closes on a given day and the Dow Jones plummeted? The average investor will say, well, I'm going to go back to work the next day and I'm going to buy. And that's what Americans and international investors continued to do. But it didn't continue in October of 1929. So when the market crashed once again, at the end of that month, we have to look at those days that preceded it throughout the month of October and taken together, the market lost 12 times what the entire federal government was spending in one year. So after that infamous drop in October of 1929, Nobody was going to work the next day to buy American stocks. Rather, people took the losses, ran to the banks, and started to pull and withdraw money from the various lending and financial institutions throughout the United States. With money going out at such a dramatic pace, they were unable, therefore, to continue to make loans. Therefore, wave after wave of banks closed starting in November of, excuse me, early 1930 on through the, through the early 30s. By 1933, 28 states, 28 states did not have one open bank. Can you imagine that? Think about your primary lending institution or bank that you use. If you want, can you imagine what you would feel if you drove into that bank's parking lot and you saw that they were closed, what would run through your mind? Most likely you'd scratch your head and say, okay, wait, this branch is closed, but I'm sure there's another one a couple miles down Main Street or two blocks in the other way down Oak Street. In other words, you'd simply drive on just to hope to find another one. Heck no, today we can go on our phones to figure out where there's an open one, open bank. They didn't have that luxury back in the 1920s and early 1930s. There was no website to check. There was no Google search for find a bank near me. Therefore, when people started seeing banks closing, people started panicking even more than they already had. By the end of 1930, only 2% of all Americans owned any stock at all. American confidence and corporate America seemed to be eroded as fast as it possibly could have. Please know that this is going to have ramifications that is going to last decades. You notice what I said, decades, plural. The average listener may think, no, 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 Chris, that only went until 1939 or 1941 when America got into World War II. No, no, it will last decades beyond this. And again, trust me on that. Continue to stay tuned for future podcasts where I'll prove what I just said. Another impact was the advantage that many workers had through the labor unions and wage negotiations. All of these now began to lose value. 
1930, there were over 4 million people unemployed. By 1932, that number rose north of 12 million. People were evicted from their residences as over 1,000 homes were foreclosed on a daily basis. Please note, too, as we also saw that with the real estate crash in 2008, that according to a couple of realtors that I spoke to since 2008 and confirmed that when a home is foreclosed on a given block, the damage that that can do to the other homes in the block. You might say, well, wait a minute. Why would that affect my home if across the street from where three doors down, a home went into foreclosure? Well, think about what that house is going to start looking like when people were evicted. The garbage that would begin, in some cases, to show up on the driveways and front lawn, the grass that isn't going to be cut, the windows that might be broken as people break in in order to try to get copper and other materials to be able to hawk and trade on, on, on the black market. Imagine what that house, again, continues to look like a month later, two, month, two months later, to the point that if you had a real estate appraisal for your single dwelling home, and let's just use a round number of $100,000, that if there is one visible foreclosed house that you can see from your front porch, your curb appeal drops, translated into numbers that equals about 15% on average. What that means is again, looking at the numbers, that if your house was appraised in, on January 1 of a given year at $100,000, and two weeks later, a house across the street from you went into foreclosure, three months later, with the grass overgrown, the windows broken and boarded up, you cannot ask now more than $85,000 for your home. You've done nothing negative to your home. But it's the prospective buyers that step up to your front porch, turn around and say, oh, there's a foreclosed home on this block. It doesn't bode well. Two foreclosed homes, your house might only be worth now $70,000 when again it was appraised just a few months ago at $100,000. So when all of these homes are losing their owners, back in the Great Depression, as well as in the financial recession starting in 2008. That's the reason why there would be changes in the 21st century and how banks were handling people that couldn't pay their mortgage because everybody loses when a house forecloses, something we'll talk about towards the end of the series on American history, the second half of American history, when we discuss in greater detail the financial crisis. Automobiles were now simply, of course, no longer affordable. It's the reason why so many car manufacturers would go belly up as a result of the Great Depression. The number one cause of car accidents throughout the 1910s and 1920s was a driver seeing a pedestrian in front of them and attempting to stop the car, but driving right over the, past, the pedestrian anyhow. When asked later on, why didn't you stop your car for the pedestrian, for somebody walking in front of your car? Oh, I tried to, but instinct and habit kicked in. So what happens is when a new driver 
gets into the car and is trying to figure out how to work the pedals and the steering wheel. And of course, as we know, we have to work on that all at one time. And don't forget the shifting of the transmission. All of that has to be coordinated and learned. Well, in the privacy of one's driveway or down in a deserted street, you can take your time figuring out how to press the gas pedal, shift from first gear to second gear, hit the brakes, go from second gear to first gear to neutral, right? But as one gets more comfortable with that, they start going on the populated streets. Remember that these drivers were born and raised riding horses and pulling horse-covered wagons. So in a panic, when a driver of an automobile would see somebody walking across the street right in front of their car, or the car in front of them slams on their brakes, instinctively, instead of taking the right foot and jamming it on the brake pedal, they pull on the steering wheel and yell, whoa, to stop the car, when in fact, that's not going to work because they're not driving or not riding a horse, they're driving a car. So again, this was part of the reason why that pedestrians getting hit by automobiles was the number one cause of accidents. Well, it's no surprise as the 1930s wears on, those accidents plummet. Sure, you're going to see automobiles. You'll see pictures of automobiles as I show my students a few pictures of the old Ford Model Ts. And sure, and there's somebody in the driver's seat and somebody in the passenger seat. But I asked them to look at those cars closely and look what's missing. Sure, the front part of the car is removed. There's no engine. There's no unnecessary body panels. Because the car now is what a car actually is a shortened term for, carriage. And the car returned once again to being a carriage pulled by horses. Think about it. The old burlap-covered Conestoga wagons from the late 1800s on back, what really is the difference between that wagon and an automobile in the early 19th and early 20th century? There were so many similarities. So it was no surprise that people just ditched the engine, ditched the transmission, the differential, all that unnecessary weight, and went back to horse-drawn carriages once again. On top of that, no surprise, well, the dust, was hitting the fan. What I mean by that is not what you might have thought I was going to say that shit hitting the fan. No, this was the dust hitting the fan with the great dust storms that would wreak havoc throughout the United States. Now, when I brought up this part about the great dust storms and the dust bowl, the average listener, especially if they're an American listener familiar with, with this part of American history, your mind geographically went west of the Mississippi River. But the fact of the matter is that these storms affected almost every part of the United States, even the land east of the Mississippi River. So what were these dust storms? Let's unpack this here. Well, first off, when I'm talking about storms, we are talking about masses of dust that in some cases were over 1,800 miles wide, wreaking havoc from the plains all the way to the east coast carrying, it is estimated, three tons of dust for every American alive during these years. There would be up to 49 recorded storms in just three months of 1934 alone. 
Americans, unfortunately, were beginning to scratch their heads and learning why Native Americans, that as the settlers in the mid and late 1800s were working our way west of the Mississippi River, they were now beginning to learn the lesson why Native Americans covered open soil at all times. But we weren't listening to Native Americans. The European Americans, the Asian Americans, they knew better, or so they thought, and they didn't listen to those Native American pointers and tips and lessons that needed to be learned. The natives had been on that land since the last ice age. And now these European and Asian Americans were coming over for the first time, and we weren't open to learning the lessons from the Native Americans. As a result, four generations, roughly 80 years of Americans turning up to six feet of topsoil all across the plains was a bad check that was now coming due. With the severe drought setting in under clear skies, the sun baked that loose soil. Dry thunderstorms created enough static electricity to raise the dust up from those great plains to 10,000 feet into what is still at this time an undiscovered concept called the jet stream. We had no idea why this dust that was getting pulled up from the ground would suddenly get to a certain point in the sky and start moving briskly. And that's an understatement, because in some cases, these dust storms are moving faster than 65 miles an hour, to the point that when these dust storms hit, and I've experienced two of them, once when I was traveling in southwestern part of the United States in Arizona, I saw a small dust storm that was fairly inconsequential in comparison to this, but when I traveled through the Middle East, I saw uh, two dust storms. That made me pause just because of the volume of dust and the way it truly blocked the sun. People that were being brought into these, that were victims of these dust storms, there was no predicting when they were going to start. And of course, there was no way of knowing how long the storms would last once they descended onto these American households. People literally had to tether themselves around the waist with rope tied the one end of the rope around the doorknob to the inside of the house and then work their way by memory just to use something as simple as simple as the outhouse that again it gives 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 you an idea how thick this dust was as people literally once they got away from their house might not remember exactly how to get back as they attempt to try to breathe through their clothing, handkerchiefs, or whatever material that usually was inadequate to try to filter the dust out of the air. Remember again, as I once talked about in the podcast about the discovery of the Americas with Christopher Columbus and the boys. Now, when I'm talking about storms moving at 65 miles an hour, wind Speed is not the same thing as wind pressure, which is the reason why a lot of these lighter uh, shelters and lighter structures would be destroyed with these storms. Because wind pressure is four times the square of the speed. 
So all of these forces that there's no way for them to look up in any books at the time, there's no internet to go search, all of these forces are working against them as they attempt to try to navigate their way to something as simple again as using an outhouse. And the slow death for the victims was frightening as people with in livestock with stomachs and lungs full of dirt. It became known as dust pneumonia and also another term that started to be coined at this time called the Brown Plague. Farmers were losing up to $25 million a day in 1930. Remember again that as these storms moved east, they didn't necessarily dissipate over the Mississippi River Valley. Sometimes they did, but other times if the weather conditions were right, these massive dust storms could move clear across the Mississippi River Valley through Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, all the way through to the East Coast to the point that ships coming into the New York City harbors and other harbors throughout the Atlantic sometimes had to drop anchor several miles out at sea and wait for the storm to pass because they couldn't figure out and they couldn't see truly where the harbors were as these storms worked their way out into the Atlantic. So this end of this idea of go west, young man, make a living for yourself, start anew, as the phrase began to start to be known at this time, the idea of go, yes, go west, young man, no thanks, I'll take a pass and try my luck in hell. Because even that probably was better than what the average American was living like and the experiences they were having out west. So where is government intervention with all of this? Where is Herbert Hoover and those Republicans that were swept into office for yet another term? Good question. Hoover, unbeknownst to most, definitely had his ear to the ground with this. He had the stethoscope going. He understood the plight that Americans were experiencing, not only by the Great Depression, independent of anything else, but also the result of the dust storms that was negatively impacting the amount of food that was available to bring America through the winter months. He immediately started creating boards to help raise private funds. He reduced federal taxes as, to as low of a rate as possible. And he might say, well, wait a minute. If that was good enough, wouldn't he have been swept into a second term? No. As we know, Herbert Hoover is not only a one-term president, but all the way through to the 21st century, he is still ranked as one of the bottom presidents and all of presidential rankings. However, again, looking back for our rose-colored glasses, it's easy to criticize, but Herbert Hoover was committed to a balanced budget. That's the reason why, yes, he lowered income taxes to as low as possible, but this whole idea of doling money out to people on the government's back, that was unheard of at this time. So you know, what I'm getting at is not necessarily to justify what Hoover did, but to explain that Herbert Hoover was acting as he and the Republicans anticipated most Americans would have wanted him to. The last thing the American people wanted to see, so it was thought then, was an American government spending money it itself didn't have. So remaining to a, committing to a balanced budget was nothing but good politics. Again, at that time, 
because that's what prior American presidents had done. Every president, of course, no, not at all. No, nobody threw America into a deficit faster than the presidents like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And as we know, a future Franklin Roosevelt is going to spend, put America into spend, spending oblivion. And you might say, wait a minute, those three presidents that abandoned the idea of a committed, of a balanced budget and spent money that America didn't have, aren't they the top three ranked presidents? You got it. Because America would turn out, does have an appetite for the government spending money it doesn't have temporarily to try to get Americans back on our feet again. So again, as the 1920s are turning into the 30s and Americans are trying to figure out truly how to make ends meet, how to even figure out where those ends are if they're in the middle of a dust storm, the looming presidential election of 1932 was coming. Herbert Hoover, staying again committed to a balanced budget, creating those boards to help raise private funds, reducing those taxes to as low as possible, thought for sure that he's a shoe-in for a second term. The Democrats, on the other hand, were more or less at sea in their own dust storm trying to figure out what person do we put up to challenge President Herbert Hoover, who's doing everything by the book, to possibly unseat this long Republican streak of good luck that had happened with the election of Warren Harding back in 1920. Ironically enough, who the Democrats chose to help the crippled economy, to help the crippled out West Dust Bowls, would be a physically crippled man himself. None other again than I mentioned earlier, Herbert Hoover. How then does he attempt to unseat a popular president like Herbert Hoover? That's what we'll pick up with in the next podcast as we see what aces he pulled out of his sleeve and why the presidential administration of Franklin Roosevelt will retrospectively be considered to be the beginning of America's modern presidency. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website at ceconsola.com and leave me a review if you would. Other than that, have a great remainder of your day, and we'll see you with the next podcast, number 25, in our series on U.S. History 2.